federal contractors get plenty of feedback from the government. But outside of protests, the notion of 360-degree evaluation doesn't exactly operate. Until now, maybe. Thanks to a new rule from the Federal Acquisition Regulation Council, the FAR Council, called Acquisition 360 to encourage vendor feedback. Here with what this is all about, Center Law and Consulting Partner Alan Chavotkin. And Alan, good to have you back. I'm always a pleasure to be with you. And this rule is final. It takes place later this month. And what does it actually do here? Well, for the first time in a long time, it's been five years in gestation, uh, the FAR Council now wants to encourage federal agencies to solicit vendor feedback at the conclusion of a procurement to assess how well the agency has performed and to solicit input from the vendor community, both those who participated as well as ideally those who did not participate as to why. How can they improve the process? Again, so not that the end result is a perfect process, but that the agency has an an opportunity to improve the results of the procurement. What possible forms could that take? Most of these are in the form of a open-ended survey, and the FAR Council is going to work on a set of core survey questions for vendors. They already solicit some open form questions for contracting officers to comment on the program office and for the program office to comment on the contracting office. This is really the outreach to the vendor community for comments about the entire process. Because if a vendor is really unhappy with the process, there can be a protest at the point that the solicitation is offered, and then there can be another protest after the contract is awarded, and that's feedback. But if everything goes protest-free, what could a vendor typically or potentially comment on that the agency does? I mean, what about a procurement could they comment on? Well, they might say, for example, that the agency was too slow in responding to solicitations or came too late in responding to uh, vendor questions. So that made an impact on the ability of a company to put a team together or to draft their solution. Uh, They might comment on the number of changes that went through or a shift in the personnel. Again, this is not to evaluate the rate an agency or a contracting officer is not a scorecard about them. It's really about the process. But there are innumerable uh, issues that might affect how a vendor views the process that don't go to the heart of the solicitation and evaluation. And what about the requirements themselves? Often, you know, I think vendors, contractors may have the sense that they know what the government actually needs but they also know what the government put in its requirements. And as we all know, there's a long history there of variance. Could that be something that could be surveyed? Well, it it could be. There's a a lot of open-ended questions where that information could come in. This is not a substitute or a replacement for anything else. So in the situation you mentioned, if I asked, I'd always encourage companies to get in early on their communication and not wait for this post hoc evaluation. But here again, if that's the only chance a vendor has, they might choose to not respond in that way during the procurement, but want to let the agencies know why they didn't pursue it because they weren't satisfied with the requirements or didn't think they were adequately described. 
We're speaking with Alan Chavotkin. He's a partner with Center Law and Consulting and long-term observer of all things federal procurement. What about debriefings? How do these differ from debriefings? And is there an opportunity in a debriefing to get some of this information to the government? Well, there are debriefings that typically the government talking to the vendor about why they did not win a procurement. Occasionally, a vendor, I encourage vendors who win procurements to seek a debriefing. To always, you want to understand the agency's decision making. This is not the best time for making those comments because the focus here is the agency sharing with the vendor uh, their evaluation, their conclusions about the value and quality of the uh, vendor's procurement uh, solution. But every opportunity to engage with the government, in my view, is an opportunity to inform them about how the process has worked and what opportunities the vendor has had to fully and fairly participate in them. And to whom would these reverse debriefings, I guess you might call them, apply? That is, the contracting officer is one party to all of this, but there's a source selection team. There is a requirement setting team, which could be the program or the technology office. Would all of those people be able to see these results? Yes. And the goal here under the rule is to anonymize the response so as to encourage feedback unless the submitter chooses to be identified. But yes, all of those parties, the contracting officer, the requirements team, the program office, all part of the draft questions from the earlier proposed rule remains to be seen there. FAR Council still has to write the final questions based on this final rule, and that should come in the next 30 to 60 days. Yes, all of those, uh, every party to the acquisition on the government side should be subject to this uh, set of comments. Right. So I guess if there's some really strong feedback or there are some flaws that are of a serious nature that might have been indicated by the survey that nevertheless didn't derail the procurement, I mean, you can learn a thing or two from that type of feedback. Is your sense the government will take this in stride and, well, okay, we're going to fire contracting officer XYZ because of this? That's not what anyone wants to happen. No, and that, again, the goal is not, uh, I mean, if there's all those kinds of issues, I wouldn't wait for this kind of feedback, uh, this 360 review, the vendor comments uh, to be the source of that. Those ought to be identified and escalated up the contracting chain if you believe a contracting officer acted uh, improperly or um, violated some other of the procurement rules or uh, some other failure in the acquisition system. This is really designed to get at a systemic set of issues, even though it's going to come one solicitation, one procurement at a time. Right. Will these be accumulated? And will it be possible, do you think, for either industry or the government to aggregate findings over time, learn about trends, and really get at systemic issues with how a particular agency goes about procurement and acquisition? I would would expect that would be the ideal outcome. They promised to make the results available in the aggregate, uh, and that's the goal, to improve procurement outcomes via an improved procurement process. So no FOIA necessary? No FOIA necessary, no. Alan Chavotkin is a partner with Center Law and Consulting. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his blog and to that new rule at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting that vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. 
As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. 
Okay, I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.